Good morning, friends. This is the day, regardless of the incredible amount of humidity and rain that we already experienced, this is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Hear this call to worship from the book of Psalms. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep away people in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. And may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. You establish the work of our hands. May God use our hands in worship this morning. Let us stand and sing.
As we sing praises to God, we acknowledge that while we seek to be a people of praise, we are not always faithful. And so we can, uh, in the midst of that, uh, offer a prayer of confession honestly and authentically because that's who we are, and there's nothing to be ashamed of with that. So let us pray to God together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. My friends, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. Let us sing of that goodness and that good news.
sisters and brothers in Christ, it is because of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection that we have peace with God and with each other. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor and those of you worshiping online to greet each other in the chat. Well, good morning, church and friends and guests. The Lord be with you. We are so glad to gather with you in worship this morning, whether whether you are here in person or whether you are joining us online. Uh, it is a good to be together. My name is Ross Dielman, one of the pastors here at Fellowship Church. We're together. Our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. One of our teacher friends this week reminded me of a fun way to think about summer. They said that the month of June is a bit, it's all like a weekend. So the month of June is a bit like Friday. The month of July is a bit like Saturday. And the month of August is a bit like Sunday. So it still feels like we've got a really robust weekend uh, Sunday celebration yet for the rest of summer. Um, in our life together, we seek to be a people who belong and grow and serve together, and we do this in a myriad of ways. One of the ways I want to draw your attention to is by loving and caring for one another, according to uh, some of the prayer concerns on the back of our bulletin, which you might have with you. There's a long list of things, celebrations, and concerns there. I want to draw your attention also to one that's missing that came up since the printing of the bulletin, uh, and that is that Darlene Winters passed away and uh, we extend our sympathy to her friends and family uh, in this time. The funeral service for her will be this coming Thursday at noon. And of course, you can see on the bulletin that that joins alongside our sympathies also to the Venek family at the passing of Christine. And that service is tomorrow. Please keep these and many others in your, in your prayers this week. Uh, also, we want to invite you to uh, continue uh, leaning into life together. One of the ways we do that here is by uh, fellowship groups. And a fellowship group is a gathering of friends. Uh, a, a, it might even be around your dinner table, but an invitation to join together, sharing life and processing some of the stuff that we've talked about even on Sunday mornings. In your bulletin, there's a QR code that is a link to some discussion questions. And this summer in particular, they're really easy and free-flowing because we are looking at some of the biggest questions of life. And so you're invited to simply discuss those questions among friends and in groups. We're also celebrating that this past week was a week of uh, partnership with Camp Geneva. We are the closest church to them, at least I think. Uh, and it was fellowship week over there and uh, a, a good week to be together. Uh, Pastor Nate and I were there and this was the night where, Thursday night where we celebrated all of the leaders and the staff who are making camp happen. So 37 pizzas, 10 o'clock at night. They run hard over there. It is a great and meaningful rich experience, also very, very hot and tiring, uh, but thanks be to God for them and their good work and for our opportunity to partner with them. Another great thing that's been happening this 
summer that leans into belonging, growing, and serving together is Meet Up and Eat Up. It happens twice in the summer. One session has already happened, and there's another one yet coming. So I invite you to take a look at this highlight video as a celebration and an invitation to join into the next session. in thanking God for what has been and what is yet to be with the next session. If you'd like to join in the next session, it's August 15 to 24, and you can sign up just outside of the sanctuary or online as well. A great thing to be a part of. One of the last ways that I want to mention this morning of how we belong, grow, and serve together is by giving, and this is a fun little thing that happened again just this past week. If you shop for groceries, which I'm pretty sure all of us do, and if you buy from Family Fair or D&W and keep your receipts and turn them in in the back, which I know many of you have done, those accrue. And when it hits $150,000 worth of groceries, congregationally, Fellowship Church gets a check for $1,000. And that happened this past week. That's the fifth time that's happened. So whatever the math is, 150 times five is a lot. So that's a lot of groceries. And thanks for doing that and for many other ways that you support the ministry and mission of Fellowship Church, which you can also do not only by buying groceries and turning in receipts, but also placing uh, funds in the collection plates in the back or giving online. We're glad to be in this together as a church family. At this time, kids are dismissed to go off to their uh, kind of worship adventures with Miss Betsy in the back, kids three through first grade, and then uh, we're going to continue in worship through song. tongues they were 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for our joy in you, for the joy of gathering together as a community of people in glory of your name, for the joy of singing together and praying together, for the joy of the grace that you have assured us as we confess our sins to one another, for the joy of studying the scriptures together, and for the joy of gathering at your table. Lord, as we turn toward the scriptures this morning, as we continue our worship, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see you more clearly and open our ears so that we can hear your voice more clearly. Open our minds so that we can think about you more clearly. And Lord, open our hands and allow us to participate in the work that you are doing in your kingdom. Um, in the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Tiara. If I have not met you yet, I am one of the pastors here at Fellowship, and uh, we are in a series that we've been calling The Questionable Life. Uh, this is week nine of the series, uh, and we've been exploring the questions raised in the scriptures, uh, the big questions, the scary questions, the existential questions that are raised in the scriptures that we hold uh, in our hands. And today's question comes to us from Ecclesiastes chapter two, if you want to start making your way there. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter two, uh, the question what does a person gain from all of their toil? What does a person gain from all their toil? Which is another way of saying, are any of our human endeavors worth it? You start the business and then the economy tanks. You go to college, you take on the debt, and then the recession hits. You work really hard, you make the team, you're even starting, and then you get injured. You study relentlessly, you gather all the extracurriculars, you do the right internships, and then you get the rejection letter. You build the business, you drive it towards success, you pass it on, and through a series of imprudent decisions, your successor destroys it brick by brick. What does a person gain from all of their toil? And was it worth all of the sleepless nights? Was it worth the anxiety? 
Was it worth the stress? Was it worth the effort? And how do you know when the thing you worked so hard to build evaporates before your very eyes? What does a person gain from all their toil? The teacher of Ecclesiastes has a few thoughts for us that might shake us to our very core this morning. But in them, we find something like wisdom as we think about our own endeavors. So hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, picking up in verse 18. I hated all of my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. And even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Fun text today. Uh, (laughs) uh, So what does a person gain from all of their toil and striving of heart? The teacher poses a question to us that raises questions about why we work, why we exert effort toward things. And it's an uncomfortable question because we have been taught, many of us from a very young age, that our work is a gift from God. So much of who we are is tied to what we do. For instance, you go to a party, neighborhood, backyard barbecue, and after learning your name, what's the first question a person asks you? What do you do? We even ask this question to little kids. Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Even college students get this question in their own way. What are you studying? Which is another way of asking the question, what will you do when you finish your studies? Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing because without work, without a deep sense of vocation and purpose, we tend to wither According to a Gallup poll conducted back in 2014, Americans who experienced job loss were nearly two times as likely to experience depression than those who were employed. Work is not the core of who we are. It's not the core of our identity, but it is a pretty huge part of who we are. And we miss it when it's not there. We miss it when we're cut off from it unexpectedly because of layoffs or or maybe even global pandemics. And even when we plan to leave it, we still notice that it's not there even for something like retirement. Work gives us a sense of purpose, a way to contribute to the world around us. We see this in Genesis chapter one. Humanity is made in the image of God, but specifically, specifically before we go into Genesis one, the image of a God who works. In Genesis one, we um, find the triune God of our scriptures designing creation like an artisan. And then in Genesis two, we find God finishing all of the work 
that he has done, resting on the seventh day from all of the work that he had done. In Mark 6, um, in the incarnation, we see Jesus as a carpenter. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? The text says, in John chapter 20, at the resurrection, we see the risen Christ mistaken for a gardener. Mary, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, apparently God is not only a God who works, but one who gives dignity even to the seemingly insignificant and perhaps even dirty jobs of creation. Humans are made in the image of a God who works and also a God who exists in relationship to oneself, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And humans are made in the image of a relational God who works so that we can join his work. And how do we do that? Well, according to God himself in Genesis 1, through the ordinary task of making relationships or making families and stewarding creation. The first humans were giving a very robust two-pronged vocation to fill the earth, make families, and subdue the earth, or have dominion over the earth, or, or steward the earth, direct the earth to its flourishing. We are to be fruitful in the creation and sustaining of families and friendships and relational networks, but also in the stewarding and directing of creation itself toward its flourishing. Reformer Martin Luther had a very robust theology of work, and he taught that God's providential work to care for creation um, happens through humans, uh, such that he called human beings the fingers of God, God's fingers in caring for creation. Our work, then, is not just a gift for us, but specifically the means by which we care for one another, the way that we respond to the needs of the world around us. This means that the answer to the question, what do you do, can be answered in, with any combination of paid and unpaid roles like wife or husband, or son or daughter, or sister or brother, or friend, or colleague, or neighbor, or citizen, or athlete, or student, or plumber, or truck driver, or maybe housekeeper or professional, or maybe professor or teacher, maybe stay-at-home parent, leader, politician, coach, caregiver. The roles and tasks by which we live into our two-pronged call to make relationships and steward creation, the roles and tasks from which we find meaning and purpose for ourselves, and ultimately the roles and tasks by which we serve the needs of others with excellence. This is a gift of God for us, but always addressed to the world around us. And yet, the author of our text today calls work meaningless. The teacher raises two arguments for the meaninglessness of work. First, he says in Ecclesiastes 2 in verse 18 uh, through uh, 21 there, uh, one strives and toils all their life but leaves their work and their earnings to at best someone who didn't build it with her own bare hands and at worst someone who is a fool. Verses 22 through 23, the work itself is full of anxiety and stress and sleepless nights. It's utterly vexing, the teacher says. It's all vanity, the teacher says. Now, the teacher uses this word for vanity, uh, hevel. Let me hear you say hevel. A little bit more throat in there, hevel. There you go, there you go. We all have COVID now. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so this word hevel is uh, used something like 35 times in the very short 13 chapter book of Ecclesiastes. He uses it over and over and over again. 
It's only it's also almost often translated as vanity. Uh, and when you think vanity, you probably think of like the, the Greek myth. I forget the, the name of the person, but he's like staring in the mirror at himself. Uh, what was it? Narcissist. Narcissist. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you probably think of that. That's <laughs> pretty intuitive. <laughs> uh, but when you think of vanity, maybe think, um, think a little bit closer to the deadly sin, vain glory. Uh, think empty glory. Um, vanity can also mean empty. Uh, our work is meaningless or it's pointless, uh, the teacher says. Our work is pointless. Uh, how many of you remember the myth of Sisyphus? Yeah, a couple, well, nobody's raising their hand, so <laughs> I'm guessing not very many people. Uh, so really briefly, Sisyphus was the king of Corinth. I uh, remember Paul's letter to the Corinth, like that Corinth. Uh, so he was the king of Corinth, and Sisyphus managed to uh, figure out how to cheat death twice. Uh, and for his punishment, Zeus condemned him to uh, literally push a large boulder up a hill. Some of you have heard and you just don't remember, push a large boulder up a hill and he gets almost to the top of the hill and the boulder rolls back down the hill. He has to go back down the hill, start pushing the boulder all, all the way up the hill once again and basically repeats this action of following the boulder back down the hill, running back to try to push the boulder up the hill into all eternity. That's his punishment. Uh, our work is pointless, the teacher says. One of my favorite, one of my former colleagues at a college campus I used to work for, uh, he worked tirelessly in his office. He was a devoted number two in his office. In fact, he was the one who dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's in his department. I actually learned a ton from him, uh, watching him work, working alongside him. Uh, only his boss subtly took credit for his work and micromanaged him, kept him off of major committees and projects in the larger campus. And when his boss left to go take a job at another college, instead of the college promoting my former colleague, they hired someone from outside of the department. All the effort, all the skill, all the excellence he demonstrated, all of it overlooked when it counted. Our work is pointless, the teacher says. But we also encounter this word hevel in another part of scripture. Actually, for the first time, we encounter this word hevel in Genesis chapter four. Only then it's a person, Abel, the second son of Adam and Eve. His name is Abel, but it's actually hevel. Hevel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, his older brother, a worker of the ground. Uh, here, the meaning is something like perishable, perishable because Abel's life is cut short by the sin and the brokenness of his older brother, Cain, whose name coincidentally means spear or to strike quickly with a spear. Our work is perishable, the teacher says. It's so transient. It's so short-lived. It's like mist. It's like smoke. You see it. You might even smell it, but the moment you reach out to grab it, it just evaporates before your very eyes. It's there one minute and it's gone the next. I was talking to a pastor about a year ago. He was a pretty seasoned pastor, having led several churches over the course of his career. And he began, meeting with, um, he began a meeting with me and a few other colleagues of ours uh, with a revelation from a former elder at his previous church. It seems that his successor at his previous church has systematically unraveled all of the culture building work that he had done at his former church. He was devastated. Our work is perishable, the teacher says. It's so short-lived. And the question becomes, if work is a gift from God, then why is it so pointless and why is it so perishable? Why is the fruit so inconsistent? 
Tim Keller and Catherine Leary Alsdorf um, explain just that in a book that they wrote together called um, Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. Uh, this is hands down one of my favorite books. I've read it multiple times. And uh, Tim Keller, if you don't know who he is, he is the founding pastor, uh, but retired from pastoring that particular church, um, of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. Um, and Catherine Leary Alsdorf is an executive who met Christ in his church in Manhattan. Um, eventually, she moved out west um, to lead some different organizations in Silicon Valley. Uh, at some point, Tim Keller had the bright idea that they should launch a faith and work initiative at their church to kind of help people to think through what does it mean to be Christians at work in more ways than just kind of giving gospel tracts to like your people in your fellow cubicles, um, sharing your faith with people. But how does your faith inform your work, the way that you do your work, the excellence that you bring to your work? Uh, and so he thought we should probably get someone from industry to do that. So he tapped Catherine, literally called her and said, I know you're doing really fun things in industry, but would you consider leading this thing? We don't know what it's going to turn into, but would you like stake your, the rest of your career on this? Uh, and she said, yes. Uh, so she joined them in New York, built this really cool initiative, and this book is one of the products of that. They wrote it together. Uh, and in it, they actually talk through a number of things, um, but one of them is, why is it that our work can be, if it's a gift from God, also futile, also pointless, um, so self-centered, like all of the things. Um, and one of the things they talk about is actually Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we realize that um, not only pain, but also thorns and thistles and sweat come to complicate our work. And specifically, the two tasks of our vocation, relationships and our stewardship of creation, before humanities fall into sin, um, our relationship-making work, our stewardship of creation work, um, both of those would yield fruit, pretty uncomplicated fruit, consistently yielding fruit. And yet after humanities fall into sin, um, our work to make relationships, and after a fall into sin, our work to steward creation gets complicated by pain and by thorns and by thistles and by sweat, such that it doesn't bear fruit always or consistently. Um, it doesn't always lead to success and achievement. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't because hevel. You hear you say hevel. Yeah. So our relationships and our stewardship of creation become excruciatingly difficult. Not impossible, but difficult. And we see this in our own lives, right? Like we see this in our own relationship making. We see this within our own work. Um, friendships that are marred by alienation and bullying and quickishness and hurt feelings and arguments and feuds. Uh, marriages that are marred by abuse and neglect and divorce. Parent-child relationships that are marred by abuse and neglect and distrust and, and estrangement and abandonment. Um, our own work plagued by burnout and insecurity and, and busyness, uh, organizations plagued by harassment and micromanagement and office politics and greed and ruthless uh, competition, uh, neighborhoods by violence and poverty and addiction and isolation, even the glory of the church marred by scandal and abuse and dysfunction and inattentiveness to our primary vocation to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a hurting and hopeless world. Our work is so aimless, it's so pointless, it's so perishable, it doesn't always hit the target it's aiming at, the teacher says. Ecclesiastes offers a really sobering word to us, one that's pretty dark and distressing. And the question becomes, what do we do with all of that? So two observations that I think actually point not to the futility of work, but to the redemption of work in our Christ. 
So first, not to confuse you, but there are actually two voices in Ecclesiastes. The voice of the teacher that we've been reading, and that's the bulk of the text, and the voice of the author who presents the teacher's words and even frames the teacher's words for us. In chapter five, it's the teacher who tells us to fear God. But God is the one that you must fear. And in the very last verses of Ecclesiastes, we hear from the author who says to us to not only fear God, but to obey his commandments. Why? Because every deed that we do, every task that we perform, every role that we take on will be considered by God. Will be, uh, he uses the word judged, but don't think judged like don't think that negatively. Think judge, like considering, like weighing, like, like inspecting. Every deed will be seen by God, weighed by God, considered by God, which tells us that instead of resigning ourselves to despair um, and hopelessness, we learn to do, um, to do something like holding intention, both, both our due diligence on the one hand um, and humility on the other hand. That Sometimes you work hard and, and things fall apart anyway. Sometimes you play your heart out and you lose the game anyway. Sometimes you study hard and you still don't get the acceptance letter. And sometimes you do. And that is mysterious. It's perplexing. It's paradoxical. It is absurd. It is absurd is what the teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying. This is mysterious and it's absurd. And yet somehow God redeems even the absurdity. As we scrub floors that will get dirty again, as we do the hundred load of laundry for the week, as we prepare meals that'll get inhaled within minutes, as we do group projects for which we won't always get credit, as we play our hearts out on the field that the recruiter never sees, as we cross I's and dot T's that no one will consider when it counts, as we engage in service that an admissions committee never values, as we perform tasks and roles and duties and deeds that may go underappreciated, our character is shaped in profound ways. This is God's redemption of the things that we do. We are shaped in profound ways. So in the face of the sin and the brokenness that sometimes, sometimes, but not always, sometimes renders our work pointless and perishable, we are called to a kind of humility that holds things loosely, but also a diligence that invests like it matters because it does in God's economy. Before the God who weighs every deed according to his just judgment, and not only weighs it and considers it and sees it, but somehow and miraculously holds it all together in Christ. So first we're called to a kind of humble faithfulness in our tasks and duties because God sees our work. But secondly, the teacher says, eat, drink, and be merry. All the Enneagram sevens are like, finally a book of the Bible I can get on board with. <laughs> eat, drink, and be merry. Be merry. This is what I've been saying the whole time. <laughs> Uh, what the teacher is saying to us, I think, is that we should pause every once in a while. And we should have a meal with the people that we love and care about because we'd have to eat anyway. Maybe we should grab a drink or a cup of coffee with the people that are our friends and who know us well because you need to laugh anyway. But ultimately, um, to be merry, and I love the literal translation for this, which might be in your footnotes in your Bibles, but it's to, uh, the literal translation of be merry is to reveal to your soul the good in your toil. Another way to say that would be to make your soul see the good amidst your toil. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? But what does that even mean? Um, my best guess as to what that means actually happened for me a little earlier this week. I was sitting with this text for a week. Uh, I was actually planning to, I, I 
dared myself to write two sermons in a week. That didn't happen. I wrote one sermon per week. Um, but um, I ended up coming. The reason I was going to write two sermons in a week was because um, this past week, I actually got to spend some time with the Colossian Forum. And the Colossian Forum is a really amazing organization that does work to help people transform conflict. Um, and they decided to invite 12 pastors from West Michigan into a conversation um, centrally around what does it look like for the church to be hope, um, but specifically a distinct hope in the midst of political polarization in our world, um, and to essentially talk through some of the like most hot-button issues of our day. Totally easy topic, uh, totally easy topics, but, um, but over the course of um, something like a year, like basically three, um, three rounds of like four days of conversation. And so this was the first round. The next one's in November. Next one after that is in May. Uh, so I go to this thing. I know, I know it's coming up on the calendar. I've been preparing for it for weeks. Um, but then I finally get there, and I am unbelievably stressed, not just by the conversation, but specifically because there's a million and one things to get done because it feels like Sunday, right? Um, and so there's this point where I am um, laying in bed on the first night, and my brain is doing that thing where it's like spinning with like anxiety and like thinking of all the things that I haven't gotten done and like obsessing, which obsessing helps me do my work well, but it also can be a bad thing. Uh, it's a gift and a curse, shadow side. <laughs> so my brain is doing that thing where it's like obsessing. Uh, and I'm thinking about all the things that I haven't gotten done, the emails I haven't answered, the voicemails from people that I haven't responded to, uh, the sermon that I haven't written yet, meetings I need to prepare for, uh, looking ahead to the semester at Calvin to get ready for, the discussions that we're gonna have at this event, discussions we're gonna have at future events. Uh, and eventually, and I know some of you do this too, the number of hours I can still sleep right? Like, as they, like, take five, <laughs> like, I have this many hours left. Okay, this many hours left. Okay, this many hours left. <laughs> so um, as the hours ticked by, my brain just kept doing the anxious, busy, obsessive thing. And then eventually this passage came to mind, and specifically this verse, uh, this particular verse, make your soul see the good in your toil. Make your soul see the good in your toil. And so I did. I began to, in gratitude, actually be grateful for the amazing group of people um, in this church that I get to serve and serve alongside of here at Fellowship Reform Church, the amazing colleagues that I get to serve alongside of, the amazing professors and classmates that I get to study with every fall and spring, the amazing cohort of pastors with which to talk about the heavy topics of our day with, of our, of our time with, uh, and the amazing opportunity in all of that to grow and to be challenged to become more of who Christ calls me and all of us to be. Somehow, that began to study me. Not because all the things were somehow miraculously done, but because I could trust God to hold it all together. There's a reason why the Ignatians teach us this practice of the prayer of examine to do just before bed, to go through our day, to think about our day, to look for God in our day, because something about that practice just before bed begins to calm us. Before the Calm app, there was the Ignatian prayer of examine. In the face of the pointless and perishable nature of work and the anxious striving of work, we're invited to a kind of humble due diligence before God in our tasks. We're invited to eat and drink to the full. We're invited to reveal to our souls the good in our toil. And all of this, the teacher says, is a gift from the hand of God himself. And this morning, we get to practice that at the table. It's at the table, we are nourished by the grace that empowers us to diligence in our humble and sometimes menial tasks and roles. At the table, we take a meal, our meal, with joy and gratitude for the work that Christ is doing to redeem us, for the work that Christ is doing to redeem in us and through us. And at the table, we eat and drink, and our souls begin to see the goodness of God in the midst of our toil. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for all of the ways that you gift us as your hands and feet, as your fingers in the world to, to care for, to protect others, to serve others, to lean into the needs of others. We thank you for the joy that you give us in fulfilling such tasks. We thank you for all of the ways that you see our work even when others don't. We thank you for all of the ways that you redeem our work. We thank you for the fruit that we get to see of our work and the fruit that we will begin to ponder and behold in eternity with you. And Lord, we thank you for the redemptive work of Christ that holds all things together and for the meal that we get to partake of at your table. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Tierra, and for uh, such a wonderful transition to the table here. I want to invite you to hear again the word of the Lord from our text today. It says this, People can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? It's a reminder to us that life is never better than, we, than when we live it with God. It's a reminder at this table, remembering that Jesus is the host, that no matter what happens in the world, no matter what we've done, Jesus came to make right whatever has been made wrong. And even these small little fragments that we'll take of bread and juice together today, they may remind us of the futility of our work, the smallness of all the very things that we do, and yet we remember that it was Jesus, the host of this table, who invited us here and into the mystery of this sacrament where, where he says, take and eat. He does not say take and understand. He says take and eat, and we trust the good work of God to multiply and bless and make good, even our small efforts. Let's pray together. Holy and right it is, and our joyful duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places, O Lord, our Creator, almighty and everlasting God. For it is you who created the world and everything in it. You are the one that gave us life, and in you we have our being you preserve us in our providence, in your providence. But you have shown the fullness of your love in sending Jesus Christ into this world, the word made flesh for us and for our salvation. It is here at this table that we remember, we remember the sacrifice that he offered on our behalf on the cross. It is in the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again that we offer our very lives as living sacrifices. So we pray, send your Holy Spirit upon us that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And as this grain has been gathered from many hills into one loaf and these grapes from many vines into one cup, grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered by you in your name. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Friends, I invite you to remember again and to live into the very story of Jesus. For it was on the night that he was betrayed that he gathered with his disciples around a table like this one, and he took bread. And after having given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. As often as you take of it, do so in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after they had supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. The bread which we break and the cup which we bless are to us the communion of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We are continuing to evolve back to normal-ish in the way that we take communion together. And so this morning, we're going to take communion by intinction, which is a fancy church word that means that you're going to grab the piece of bread and dip it in the juice and then partake of the elements. We'll have three stations for that up front in the sanctuary here, and you will be able to come forward for that when you are ready. We also will have two rovers, so if you simply raise your hand, they will bring the elements to you. And we also have two stations over here underneath the cross. One of them is a gluten-free station if you're looking for those elements. And another is simply a, uh, a regular station, except if you are not yet ready to enter into intinction, this is a place where you can go as well. At Fellowship Church, we welcome to this table all who love God and who are learning to follow Jesus. And we say, come, for all things are now ready.
What a gift it is to be able to gather at the table this morning. Uh, one final blessing for all of us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.